0: Welcome to Bots and Ballots, a podcast about technology and politics from Yahoo News. I'm Grant Birmingham. Today I'm talking to Adam Sharp. He's Twitter's former head of news, government, and elections. Adam is now the interim CEO of the National Academy of Television's Arts and Sciences, and he left Twitter just months after the election in 2016. Since then, Adam has been critical about the social network's response to the elections and about the laws that govern them. Sharp points out that a lot of our laws were written before the modern internet, and they absolve companies of the responsibilities for what their users post. He's also critical about ads. The Federal Elections Commission doesn't treat online ads like ads anywhere else. As a result, Russia was able to buy election ads and users weren't told who paid for them. Because of Facebook's new transparency, you can actually look at some of these ads. In the lead up to the 2016 election, About 3,500 Facebook ads were created by the benign-sounding Internet Research Agency. That's actually a Russian company that is at the center of several Robert Mueller indictments. USA Today did an analysis of what these ads did. Half of them were designed to inflame race relations. 25% focused on law enforcement, with ads running on both sides of the Black Lives Matter movement. A small number, about 100, boosted Trump or attacked Hillary but many others stoked fears about the system's fairness or attacked the electoral process. These ads were seen by 25 million people. The laws that hold Twitter and Facebook unaccountable, next on Bots and Ballots. I started Facebook, I run it, and I'm responsible for what happens here. This should be a wake-up
1: call for the tech community. I did not know that Russian bots were promoting my campaign.
0: The question is, where and how did the Russians get into this?
1: We are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake.
0: So with that, I'll welcome Adam Sharp. Adam, what was the lead up to the election in 2016 like for you?
1: 2016, I think, when it comes particularly to the Russian interference, a lot of that didn't come to much light until after the election, largely because the government and the intelligence community had kept their knowledge of that uh, quite secret. Uh, you know, we found out since then that they had made warnings to the the Russian government, one in a call by John Brennan and later by uh, the president pulling Putin aside at. Uh, at a world conference. I certainly was not aware uh, of that interference really until after the election. Certainly you saw some degree of bots and and so on and so forth that you see on really any topic, uh, but did not understand the full scope or the organized nature of, of that campaign uh, until after the fact. I think the Belief had always been that these platforms created an opportunity for one-on-one connection between constituents and their representatives at a level that had never been seen before. And I think 2016, and certainly President Trump in his use of Twitter in particular, demonstrated that all of those expectations were true. I think what frustrated me uh, in hindsight is that in many ways he was the only player on the national stage who really took that full advantage uh, of that potential and of that opportunity. And as a result, you saw a disproportionate uh, balance of content and message that was getting that extra boost, if you will. Where I think there was more of a systematic failure was certainly uh, in blunting Russian interference and more intentioned bad actors on on the platform. Certainly there are areas uh, where that was not as severe as I think has been portrayed. I think there's other areas where we have yet to understand the full scope of it. Uh, the fact that the government really, for a variety of reasons, uh, held back from direct engagement uh, in addressing it, the fact that uh, the leading campaign, in this case the Trump campaign, uh, did not express concern over it and uh, didn't seem to want to challenge it even today, and the fact that the platforms all... Uh, either missed it or took a laissez-faire approach to it uh, after the fact, just showed that no one in any position of this system did enough uh, to try to blunt this kind of interference. And I don't think there's much change today.
0: When there's these political narratives which pop up on Twitter or Facebook, which are false, how much of the company is responsible for that? I'm just wondering, like when you have something like Pizzagate, which starts trending on Twitter, is there some responsibility there for Twitter to to stop that if it's not true?
1: So, in a legal sense, and let me first say the legal technicality sense, there is no obligation. Uh, these companies have thrived in large part due to one section of one law, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, as amended in 1996, that gives extremely broad immunity uh, to these platforms uh, against any responsibility for, for content on the platforms. Now, the law had what was at the time good intentions, but of course these companies didn't even come into existence until about a decade later. Um, And now it's just been in its interpretation by by judges over the last 10 years or so that has made it a bit of a Wild West in terms of regulation of the space. And I do think it would be warranted to revisit that. From a more moral and, and practical sense, certainly I think the platforms have a responsibility to step up, especially when uh, things are gaining speed and are demonstrably false and leading to violence and so on. The challenge is identifying where you draw uh, the line because very often it winds up being a question of interpretation and do you really want um, these Private companies who, as private companies, have the ultimate duty to their shareholders to essentially become the moral arbiters of what is appropriate speech or not in the public space. I think the government and the elected representatives of the people should be the ones laying out what those guardrails should be and what those parameters should be for what is considered appropriate in the public square. Are we ready for 2018? No. Uh, I think that the biggest problem with 2018 is the fact that the administration still won't really acknowledge that there is a, a problem. Uh, And to the extent that there is any effort to make sure that our systems and public debate around the election are not manipulated by foreign powers, that effort is being led entirely by the private sector, by Twitter and Facebook and Google, who are each working independently to try to do the right thing, but in their own ways, on their own, with their own duties to their, their shareholders, and uh, you, know, you would not have left the response to 9-11 to the real estate holders of lower Manhattan. Uh, when the country gets attacked, there's a responsibility for uh, the government to act, and that's where I think the White House's refusal to engage on the topic has been uh, particularly problematic.
0: Kind of a big question for you. Do you think that online media and these social networks have made political conversation worse?
1: I think the tone of political conversation in our country uh, goes through cycles. Look at what political debate looked like in this country a hundred years ago or 150 years ago, you'll see that there have been certainly times in our country where we have been more deeply divided than even today, and that we tend to go through these cycles of unity and and disunity. And I think all of those cycles are in part a reaction to uh, the issues of the day, but also the technologies of the day. I think it is interesting that when you look historically at when we've had those breakdowns uh, before, it has been when there have been major advances in technology to bring us closer together, that the railroads tied the country more together, but it also made a more national discussion of of issues. Radio and TV certainly – made it possible to have these broader discussions of issues but then also made it easier for particularly on talk radio extremists on on both sides to to tear us apart so i think we're seeing the same dynamic now where because we have the opportunity to have this fight on a national level uh, we tend to retreat to our corners be more exposed to the other side and as a result engage in that more which gives the appearance of this division but at the same time i think it's the same type of exposure and dialogue that will bring us out of it the same way as twitter and facebook and youtube have probably contributed to the coarsening of political conversation they have also contributed to the ability to have An Arab Spring, a Black Lives Matter movement, a Me Too movement, the rapid pace of gay rights advancement in the country. And so I think it is a double-edged sword. I think we as a nation are trying to find our new equilibrium. Certainly, these platforms are giving voice to viewpoints that did not have mainstream attention before on both sides. And it'll take some time to get to a new normal. But that winds up being a societal and cultural shift, not so much an engineering choice that the companies need to make.
0: I'll just ask one more question, Adam, so we can send you on your way. What is your shortlist for items you'd like to see Washington address?
1: I think, number one, passing the Honest Ads Act. Even though the companies are doing it voluntarily, I don't think you want a fragmented system where each company is deciding – on its own what transparency should look like. Number two, I think uh, the government does need to engage more directly on Russian interference, particularly the White House. I think Congress is already there, but simply won't be able to move forward so long as the executive branch refuses to acknowledge that there's a, a problem and provide leadership on blunting the threat and giving protections and guidance to industry for how they should engage. And then third, I think going back and looking at the Communications Decency Act, retaining the general provisions of it, I don't think you want to be overregulating this space that is one of the most thriving areas of expansion for the U.S. economy right now, but there needs to be some recognition of what the parameters are, and where companies have a responsibility to step up and contain content. The companies are self-regulating in that vacuum, which is a good thing, but then it becomes fragmented. Your rights to freedom of speech, to debate, to freedom of the press, should not be dependent on which private corporations' tools you are using for that speech Uh, Or for that that expression.
0: Adam, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Happy to. Thank you for having me. So, the good news
0: is there is a bill in Congress to fix the anonymous ads that Adam was talking about, or at least make them a lot harder to do. So, I decided to check in with Washington's Representative Derek Kilmer. He's the sponsor of the House's version of the Honest Ads Act. It's a bill with bipartisan support. Unfortunately, it's also sitting in the middle of a gridlock Congress. So elevator pitch, tell me what your bill on online advertising does. So the Honest Ads Act uh, modernizes the disclosure rules to put online advertisements in the the same vein as TV and radio broadcasts, where there'd be clear disclosure requirements so that voters will know who's paying for the ads that they're seeing. This sort of seems like a no-brainer. What has the response been on the other side of the aisle? So the good news is this is a bicameral bill, and it's a bipartisan bill. We're now at 10 Democratic sponsors, 10 Republican sponsors. You've seen Facebook and Twitter and Microsoft endorse the bill. Um, you know, right now the biggest challenge is Congress is not exactly a legislative juggernaut, um, but um, there's been a, a largely uh, understanding that this is a problem that needs solving. It's not a Democratic problem or a Republican problem. It's an American problem that gets to the integrity of American elections. That's it for Bots and Ballots from Yahoo News. Please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to my guests this week, Adam Sharp and Representative Kilmer. And also thanks to Harry Sultan and to Leah Hitchens, my producer. For Bots and Ballots, this is Grant Burningham.